Today on Backroom Politics, the politics of foreign embassies closing all throughout the Middle East. Is it real or is it just chatter? The Washington Post sells to Jeff Bezos, a known libertarian. How is that going to change the editorial page? How does that change politics in Washington? And finally, Congress is in recess. I know it's shocking. They're not doing anything this week. But what have they done for the past two years? This freeform in. Tell me a story on backroom politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's time for the best political roundtable you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, fresh from his very relaxing trip to the U.S. Virgin Islands, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hello, and greetings from Christianstead. Wow, beautiful place. Glad you're home. We miss you. And to my 11 o'clock, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hello, Justin. How you doing? Doing fantastic. And to my 12 o'clock, he is longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider, former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count under four presidents. He is a very distinguished and handsome fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Justin, hello. Well, we welcome we, back, Al. Yeah, welcome back, Thank Al. We miss you. How's your vacation, first of all? It was it was wonderful. I uh, I, I didn't get sunburned uh, and I didn't drown. All positive. Thanks for commenting yeah. to us with that. That was great. Uh, lots to get to. There's a lot of stories uh, floating around, a lot of them still developing. Uh, but the, the first one we're going to talk about real quick is, is the latest coming out of the Middle East and, and even throughout Europe. Uh, the U.S. has shut down 19 embassies uh, throughout the uh, Middle East and, and into Africa and into Europe. Uh, based on some chatter, apparently Al-Qaeda has started talking again. Uh, the new de facto head of Al-Qaeda, Al, uh, Mr. Al-Zawahiri, he has in fact been chattering with the head of Al-Qaeda in Yemen and basically set the directive that at the end of Ramadan he should do something. What that something is, is still up in the air. However, it was enough chatter and enough credible threat analysis to cause the State Department to shut down these embassies and, uh, as of today, evacuate all embassy and U.S. government personnel out of Yemen. So the, the big question here, and, and Bob, I want to start with you, is, you know, we, we've heard chatter before, but something sparked Foggy Bottom and the folks at the State Department, as well as the White House, to make a, a serious diplomatic 
challenge in closing these embassies down. Some have been closed for as long as four days. Is this an overreaction by the administration, do you think? Well, we don't know, I don't believe, everything that the White House knew before they made the decision to to close the embassies. Right. There's going to be a lot of classified information. Exactly, because they, because they probably, my guess would be, if they felt it had to be this broad, then they were getting uh, some signals that were pretty, uh, pretty frightening. And I think after the Benghazi disaster, they felt that they had to make uh, to, to to strongly ensure that our people in the embassies, the staff, and the uh, and the ambassadors and the rest of the staff were safe. And uh, they may, they probably don't have and didn't have the available for 19 different embassies, uh, 19 different uh, marine troops, uh, you know, groups of troops to go to 19 different cities and and protect the ambassador and the staff. And they may have decided the best thing to do was just simply close it down. Well, you know, Alan Moore, this also is happening during a time that uh, Senator John McCain and a few other uh, Republican legislators have gone to Egypt and started talking with the people in command. We still don't know exactly what that final makeup is, but you'd venture to say that the Republicans are probably going to be towing the U.S. party line in this, saying, look, we took these actions, including shutting down operations at our embassy in Cairo, to say, look, this is serious. We've, we've got to be serious. It's not a reflection on you or what you're doing throughout our Middle East partners. Yeah, we've... <laughs> We have successfully in Egypt uh, offended all sides, and that may not be a bad thing because uh, no one can say we've uh, credibly that we've sided with one side or the other. It was a very awkward position we were in. We we promote democracy. There was a democratically elected president <clears throat> who didn't turn out to be all that we had hoped, um, and uh, and the military stepped in. But so the the head of the military has been very critical of the U.S. for not supporting what it did, and the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, from whom uh, President Morsi uh, uh, arose, is, is mad that we, uh, we were being hypocritical on the question of, of supporting democracy. And McCain and others are trying to find a way to, to, to get them talking to each other, calm things down. With regard to this big threat, there's a lot we don't know. But what's most interesting about it is that Republicans and Democrats who are on the intelligence committees in both houses of Congress have all said, this is real, this is big, this is important, we support what the president did. That We don't need to know a lot more facts than that to know that uh, that you have to be very cautious and protect your folks. And, uh, and I want to go back to that subject later in the segment, but, uh, but Al, when it, when it comes to our diplomatic efforts, particularly in the Middle East, uh, what message does this send to our partners in governments like Kuwait, where we shut down, Qatar, where we shut down? Is, is this a is this a, um, a a possible idea where Al Qaeda may have the upper hand in what they're trying to do? They still have us running after them. Uh, I don't I don't uh, think we have the information to, to to know that. I do know this that. We have uh, neither this president nor previous presidents have not done anything on this scale at all, and we haven't had any uh, 
terrorist att attacks here in this country uh, to speak up. So I assume that this must be very, very serious or this administration wouldn't have taken this action. Now, as a result of this, I, I, would, I would hope that nothing happens. And then I would hope that the people who might find it politically expedient to say, you, you, you jumped the gun, you were too afraid, you was, would not do that. Just shut up. I, I think that it probably was a very prudent thing to do. But, Alan, more interesting development happening right now. Uh, our friends in CNN are interviewing uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, who's a Democrat on the Intelligence Committee. Uh, Congressman Schiff is basically saying that uh, you know, through our actions, through all of our intelligence gathering, through all of our security protocols and procedures, that in fact Al Qaeda is on the run, quote unquote. Is he overestimating the effect that we've had in stopping Al Qaeda in moving forward in any attacks against? Uh, yeah, I think I. I'm not sure that uh, we know what Schiff said. I was watching the, the screen too, and it, and it had a quote. But remember. That was President Obama's quote last September when he talked about the leadership being decimated and Al-Qaeda's on the run. We haven't heard a lot of that talk lately, and we certainly haven't heard it this week. So I don't think that's what this is all about. What's happened is we were able to take out some of the folks at the very top of Al-Qaeda, it, but it reminded us, uh, sadly, that Al-Qaeda has metastasized all over the region. It has, it has units in different countries, one of the most violent and aggressive being in Yemen, um, but that's not; those aren't the only ones. Uh, what, what intrigued me about all of this is we started out with with 17 or 18 countries, but the Brits, who are our close allies, only shut things down in about half a dozen. Well, it sounds like we got signals crossed. You do. We one of the things you you don't want to do when you're warning people is give too much detail in what we know, because when we tell people what we know, it's oftentimes they can figure out how we know it. And if it's because we've intercepted communications, um, then they will change the way they communicate. So what's been interesting here is we started out very broad, and then yesterday we decided to say the big guy was talking to the medium-sized guy, and that's what triggered all of this. Well, why are we being that specific? Was it a screw up? I doubt it, because this is we're, we're we're pretty good about this. Were the Brits? Was the world confused because the Brits were only looking at half a dozen countries, and and we thought we need to clarify? I don't know. Were we? Are we playing a game of deception to the Al Qaeda guys, making them think we've intercepted something? that we didn't actually intercept but maybe heard about. I don't know, and I'm not sure if we'll find out. But when I heard yesterday that there was this communication one-to-one -one that doesn't happen very often that we heard about, it made me very uncomfortable to be for us to know that and to be reading that. And uh, I've been trying to figure out just what happened that we would hear that. Bob Hines, you had a comment. Yeah. Uh, with respect to uh, Al-Qaeda is, uh, is on the run. I think it's fair to say that the, uh, we have done a, a pretty good job of killing a lot of their top leadership. But it, if you take a look at Syria, where you know a lot is going on, as we've been knowing for the last year and a half, uh, there's an awful lot of troops uh, that are Ikeda troops who are some of the best fighters and uh, going on there in the, in the Middle East. And in Syria, they are some of the ones who are the most aggressive 
and most active, and they appear to be not being very helpful to long term long term for our interests. They are basically trying to uh, ensure uh, a Sunni control of the uh, uh, of, of Syria when it, if and when the, uh, the president leaves. And it look it looks to me like their view of the matter is if they're able to be the strongest part of the fighting troops that are fighting against the the the, uh, the troops of the president of, of Syria. They will be in a very good position to, to, in effect, say when the uh, when people start trying to decide how we're going to restructure Syria, they're going to say, "Hey, we did most of the fighting, most of the, most of the big success. We're going to be major players, and that would not be very helpful at all." But Congressman Al, is is this Al, this latest Al Qaeda rhetoric or threat? Is this as a result of maybe being too active in Syria, being too active in Libya, and being seen as a player in the transition of the democratically elected Morrissey in Egypt? Who knows what al-Qaeda thinks? That is one possible conclusion that they could draw. Uh, They could also have done it for entirely other reasons. They're They're a... Trying to second-guess a fanatic is almost impossible. Alan Moore? Well, you know, we, we we make a mistake, I think, when we try to, to, to treat any entity, whether it's overseas or domestically, as monolithic. What's al-Qaeda thinking? It says, how do we know? Well, who the heck are we even talking about? Because now... Once upon a time, uh, we could we could talk about uh, Osama bin Laden and sort of view him as the titular head. But then he had major lieutenants who had a lot of autonomy, and 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 then as those guys were being killed off, we had more and more uh, entities, different places, different cultures, different history, different resources, different capabilities, different local governments, and it's a whole bunch of different people who who may have got their start from Al Qaeda who have totally different objectives and means and are quite independent. So we, who knows? It's sort of like, you know, how, how do, who speaks for Democrats anymore? Who speaks for Republicans? Who speaks for the Tea Party? There's all sorts of different groups within the group. And, and, uh, and we, we like to simplify in a world that is extremely complex and, and, uh, and, and very veiled in terms of us getting inside and and, and understanding how people think. But, but bottom line, you know, we, we've seen Al-Qaeda do this before. You know, we saw this in uh, 2006 in the uh, in some of the, some of the threats that came out from Al-Qaeda back then. We saw it notably in 2009, 2010, particularly with the liquid bombing threats coming out of Britain. We've seen this before. At some point, is is it a matter of the administration really has to sit down and get some true analysis going instead of having this broad brush that they paint with as far as shutting down 19 embassies, maybe, focus, maybe focusing in a little bit more? Well, my, my, my view is it's better to go to spread a wider net of, of, of information gathering than try to focus one specific area. Now it's clear that Yemen is 
is sort of a hotbed right now. But the truth of the matter is uh, there are uh, nests of al-Qaeda, if, if you will, in probably every one of these 19 countries that the ambassadors uh, have and the staffs have been closed down. It seems to me we're, the wider we spread our net, the more likely we are to pick up information. Congressman now, I would doubt seriously that we have information that al-Qaeda is planning to attack 19 embassies. I think what we have is information that al-Qaeda may attack one or two of any one of these 19. And therefore, the safe thing to do is to protect all 19. In other words, as Bob says, throw the net wide. But, but Alan Moore, it, it, it looks like we're chasing our tail almost in, in some of these instances. It almost seems that every time we go through this this exercise, that it looks more and more like we're chasing our own tail. Is this a lack of intel well, uh, credibility or a lack of intel capability? Again, I, as I was saying earlier, my guess is that, that we included 19 countries at the, in the beginning because we were trying to veil exactly how much detail we had. So... In order not to be too specific about our target, we, we were broader, and we, we put everybody on alert, closed the embassies for a couple of days initially, and then extended it. The Brits, with whom we, we are close allies and share a lot of information, only did that in about half a dozen. So my guess is the half a dozen are the, real t the, the, the places we're most concerned about, and there may only be two or three. Um, and and, uh, and, and, the, and as far as timing is concerned, as I understand it, uh, the, the, the great fear was that we're at the end of, of the, the the season of Ramadan, right. and I think it ends at the end of at the end of this week. Correct. And yes. so I think we just decided once we close them, let's just let's just shut things down, uh, hunker down, if you will, until the end of Ramadan. Wait a day or two after that. It, it, we know the history of of a lot of activities of of the uh, the uh, Islamic terrorists is on on significant dates and times right. of, of the year. So that's that that seemed to be the point here. Now the last thing that anybody wants is bring stuff back up uh, next weekend uh, or a week from yesterday on Monday and suddenly have uh, some kind of an attack. Right. Um, and the, 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 the unfortunate thing is we, we we had things off all the time, but you never hear about the things that don't happen right. because they didn't happen. Well, that brings up an interesting point. Bob Hines, you know, a lot of the critics of the NSA program uh, were very vocal prior to this threat becoming public, are now kind of turning a little bit saying, well, you know what, maybe it's not such a bad idea. Uh, are we going to see more of that as we get deeper into the actual details of the threat being declassified? You mean more? Um, are we going to see more people supporting the NSA program versus being libertarian about it, if you will? I think that obviously the uh, National Security Agency has got you know got burned a bit uh, in recent uh, weeks and months, but they do a good job. They do a hell of a good job. Could they do better? Well, I don't, I don't think it's ever possible to say a, a, an organization like that can't do better. You know, obviously, if something happens someplace, everybody would say, oh, my God, why wasn't it here if they protected us? The fact of the matter is, as, as Alan said, we've got 19 different, we've got 19 different agencies, the embassies we've closed down. It may be half a dozen that look more likely to be the ones to be concerned. But in, but in order to, co to, make, to, to cover the base, 
and make sure we are protected as much as we can. We did the right thing. Does, does this quiet people like Rand Paul, bottom line? Well, it's, I don't know that anything quiets Rand Paul. I think, I think he's going to be able to find something to complain about, or if it isn't, he'll be Ted Cruz, and they'll have something to say about it. But that's not the point. The point is, the important thing is that the public needs to feel a comfort level in that the fact that the that the administration is doing everything that they can do that is rational and reasonable, and I think that it's it's fair to say they have done a pretty fair job so far. Congressman, there are always people that will find something wrong in whatever you do. Uh, you could say the fact that the NSA has been working for all these months and nothing has happened could mean that they're not doing a good job or they're not doing anything at all. You could also argue that the fact that nothing has happened is due to the good work of NSA. We don't know, but uh, but people who choke choose to be critical about everything can find a hook in this. Alan Moore. Two two of the biggest critics of uh, of the the whole NSA program are, are Democrats, Ron Wyden of Oregon, and uh, in, in, in terms of in the Senate, right? Ron Wyden of Oregon and Tom Udall of Colorado, and 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 they've uh, they're on the uh, I think they're both on the Intelligence Committee. They've seen. Data and information, and they've known a lot about this program uh, since its uh, uh, since its creation, um, or at least uh, Wyden has. And and um, so there are plenty of people who are distressed about the program. On the one hand, on the other hand, when something like this comes up, and if and if it becomes clear that there are fruits beneficial to the U.S. that grew directly from this program, and that is yet to be known, um, then that that has a an educational impact on on anybody, including Rand Paul. I mean, those these, these guys are are going to be shown information, and and I'm not sure the two are directly related, but they could easily be. Um, now, I agree. We, nobody knows. Nobody can ever predict uh, what what will uh, will or will not influence a a political firebrand to cause them to. Uh, to be more circumspect or or, or calm down, but uh, but they can't ignore factual information, and uh, we will probably never see all the factual information that members of uh, of Congress will see. Although it may it may be, it, it may ooze out uh, over time. Uh, Bob Hines, there are some inside the Beltway that have also said through their analysis that. This is a direct result of our aggressive drone program coming out of the White House and the Obama administration. Is there credibility to that, do you think? I have no way of knowing, number one. But number two, uh, I believe that just uh, in the last day or so, uh, three or four uh, of al-Qaeda's operatives in Yemen were, uh, were, were attacked in a daylight strike. strike and killed, and that's a plus. I mean, I don't have any... I'd much rather you know, be able, look, if you start trying to put American troops in a truck and chase these people on the ground, you're much more likely to get Americans killed than if you use a drone to attack. So I think it's a good idea to have drone attacks. Congressman Al? I, I don't believe that al-Qaeda has been geared up so that they could, as, as a result of our drone attack, bounce back with some massive uh, 
retaliation. So they might want to, but I don't think they can. Uh, Alan Moore. Yeah, the problem with the drones is uh, we we love to kill the bad guys. Uh, we don't we we <laughs> we fly around and we bomb guys and we kill them and whoever's with them, and then we thump our chests and say they're on the run and we've taken out the, a lot of the leaders. We we tend to lose sight of uh, because we don't have good facts on uh, the uh, the impact on new recruits that this killing creates, and it does definitely create it. There's always collateral damage. Um, there's there's uh, there's an enormous hatred in the parts of the world where drones are used about the use of drones. Local politicians hate it and, and complain about it. People whose lives are affected complain about it, and it's inevitable that there are significant uh, negative effects for America of, of these drones because it has this tendency to recruit but one would argue, But one would argue, Alan, that, that in fact, largely the aggressive use of drones in theater, particularly against al-Qaeda, it's arguably successful. Yes, I, mean, these, I mean, I've talked to a couple of folks inside the intelligence community. They say that they are more worried about their own safety now and being identified and targeted than they are about the next big attack. Look, <laughs> this is just one of these dilemmas uh, uh, of modern life. We've got this amazing capability. We have killed some bad guys with drones, but we can't pretend that there's no downside to that, that, that there's furious anger um, both in, 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 in official government comments and in people whose lives are affected or who were collateral damage. Bob Hines. Drones are just the most recent development of a new kind of a weapon. In World War I, when tanks started rolling across battlefields and running people up over and killing them at much greater ease than ever had been done before, there were terrible yells and screams about how terrible tanks are. The fact of the matter is, if Al-Qaeda had drones, they'd be using drones. The fact of the matter is, it's a modern change in, the, in what we do in war. I don't necessarily like the idea of killing people, but that's a much more efficient way to get rid of bad guys than have to put Marines on the ground. Congressman Al. I, I think that's exactly right. If, if we had killed those same people with uh, manned bombers, there would have probably been about the same amount of collateral damage and, uh, you know, you talk about collateral damage, think about Dresden during World War II, you know. Uh, but we're not carpetbagging here, though, Congressman Al. I mean, uh, I, I understand. Carpet bombing or car carpet Carpet bombing. Carpet bombing. I apologize. <laughs> we're not carpet bombing. But, but I, I guess the bigger question is, you know, as, as a former member of Congress, seeing all this information that's out there, how would you have weighed the positive versus the negative on arguably a successful attack on those who want to do Americans harm. I think that the drone is a way of, of us being able to kill the guys we want to and reduce to almost zero the chances of our guys getting killed. I don't see how that's not a good thing. Well, Alan Moore. It, yeah, and I and believe me, I'm not saying we should get rid of drones. Uh, I'm just saying let's not be naive and believe that there's no downside here. Uh, there's a there's an enormous amount of uh, of distress and anger, uh, not least of all because we we thump our chests 
every time we get one of these guys. And we don't always get the guys we want. And there is collateral damage. It's not nearly what it would be if we were using massive bombs. Um, but as I've, as I've said at this table before, it's, it still strikes me this great irony that, that, that back in the day when we used to catch guys, bring them in, and interrogate them very aggressively uh, and controversially, somehow that, that, that generated in America greater angst and complaint than just killing them out of the sky. Well, hold that thought. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion because I think there's also a greater discussion as far as, I mean, we now have a worldwide travel advisory for Americans coming out of the States. We're going to talk about that and the politics surrounding that when we come back. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu. The most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lulu's back in town
And we're back here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., broadcasting live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we decided we're going to change pace a little bit. We want to talk about the, the big news coming out of Washington uh, over the past uh, 24 hours. For, uh, in case you have not seen the news, the Washington Post has sold to an organization backed by Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos, for those who don't know, is the uh, founder of Amazon.com, a multi-gazillionaire, billions of times over. Uh, the man just breathes and makes money. But he has ventured into print media by literally buying for $250 million one of the journalist flagships in the country. Amazing story, and we're going to get into the details of this, but Bob Hines... When you saw that news, what was your initial reaction to that? My initial reaction was that the media universe is changing so rapidly and so continuously that we haven't even begun to see the last of it. Uh, I have, I, I know I've said before that when uh, back in the 80s there were three networks and they had, you know, tremendous power and ability to put programming into your house. Cable came along. Cable, and now the, the television networks are fundamentally the most popular cable channels. That's what they are. Uh, they're not what they used to be. The newspapers are not what they used to be. I, I think, I think uh, uh, the Post took a look at it. I think the family took a look at it, as I, as I understand. Uh, the president said of, of the of, uh, of the post said the family was sure that we could keep the post going. But we didn't want to just keep it going. We wanted to put it in the hands of somebody who would do something well with it and, and build it as much as they can in the future. I think that's it's just a change. Things are changing very fast. I mean, we're all sitting around the table with with cell phones that uh, are not just phones. There are all kinds. Of, there are things as small as your hand are computers now and can go any place. It's amazing. So I'm not surprised that things are changing. The cost of running a newspaper in a traditional way is is getting to the point where it's no longer feasible. We all know of stories in the last few years of newspapers closing, and uh, it's better to have someone who has a lot of money owning the post than it is to have it disappear. Uh, Carl Tubin. If this works out, I think this this could show the future of, of newspapers, if it has a future. Uh, the person who's coming in, uh, head of Amazon, or founder of Amazon, I think is probably given a lot of thought to this as to what he can do to either increase circulation or do other things, corollary things, to increase circulation. And it might be the way it might be the way for the future for all newspapers. I was surprised with the amount of the sale because uh, there were some statistics given uh, yesterday about how much the, the New York Post sold for and how much some other papers sold for, and the, all the value was going down. Yeah, I, I want to yeah. talk about that in a second. But Congressman Al, as, as, a, as a former journalist yourself, I mean, the Washington Post was without a doubt one of the flagship publications in this country. Going back to Watergate, 
and the legacy that Catherine Graham had created uh, with the and post. Her block and the McCarthy era and all, all, all that, the way back. All that does. I mean, does this in fact signal the the true death of print journalism as we know it? It shows that that the industry is very very sick. I don't know whether it shows or precursors the death. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what uh, the new owner does with it. Now, you mentioned uh, at the top of the show that uh, that he was a, a, a libertarian. I almost said lesbian. Uh, Don't say that. That he's a libertarian. Don't say that. That he's a libertarian. And whether he's going to then try to focus the editorial uh, on that view or whether he has a totally different set of goals in mind, we don't know yet. Uh, I will tell you this. The the Seattle millionaires, uh, that have grown out of the internet and uh, associated things basically don't like government. It's not so much they're liberal or conservative. They just uh, they just think government doesn't know what it's doing, and they should be like us and etc. Et so he may not be so interested in being a salesman for uh, an ultra conservative uh, view as he is in trying to prove that uh, he knows how to make uh, a newspaper work. But, Alan Moore, the, the big question is, how does an IT market guy come in and buy an established journalistic pantheon like the Washington Post and expect to keep that type of journalistic credibility? Does Bezos' acquisition take away the credibility? Or, going back to Carl's point, does the price take away from the credibility? No, the, sadly, the, the, the prices of all of these properties have declined very rapidly just uh, a week ago. Uh, the Boston Globe, which the New York Times bought for $1.1 billion 20 years ago, was sold for $70 million. It used to be that newspapers and newspaper companies could own sports teams. Now, the owner of the Boston Red Sox bought the Globe for 7% of what it sold for just 20 years ago. It's it, you, you pick up today's post, and it's sitting right in front of us, um, and, or, any, or the New York Times, although the New York Times was not as is heavily reliant on on advertising as most papers. It's a thinner newspaper because advertisers don't don't advertise anymore. The revenues of the Washington Post are down 44 percent in the last few years. They are losing 50 million dollars a year. And who wants to buy that kind of a property? Now, what what, what I think Bezos is all about is a guy who cares about the country. He cares about quality in reporting. I will be very surprised. If he doesn't have a hands-off attitude towards content, and what he's going to try to do is figure out where to get the revenue to make the post work, and some of that will be in a in a newspaper you can pick up that a lot of us really like to hold in our hand and thumb through, and I'm one of them. But he's also going to have to figure out where to get revenue for all of those vultures, also like me who read stuff free on the Internet. And somehow somebody's got to figure out how to charge a penny or two for when you click on an article for from a newspaper because content is what's at risk here. Well, I mean, ultimately, the, the one who's done it the best is, in fact, the New York Times. The New York Times has done tremendously well, or it stopped the hemorrhaging of money very well, 
in their online editions, and they've started to market their online editions as the New York Times. Bob Hines, is that a trend that could be successful for an old black ink uh, paper like the Washington Post? Well, remind ourselves, the Washington Post is the po is probably covers politics, which is what Washington does, as good as anybody can do. They've got great reporters, they've got great access, and they are it's a good operation. Now, transfer that. There are people all over the country who are interested in politics and what's going on. Now, I don't know that that's going to uh, bring them, you know, zillions and zillions of, of, of new subscribers to an Internet edition, but I would suspect that Bezos will know better than anybody else will how to make the Washington Post a national paper available on, on electronic you know, devices. But get your subscription through Amazon. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, exactly. You know, you know, a lot of uh, media sources have been reporting, in fact, uh, our friends at Politico are reporting that there's almost a new rekindled, for lack of the pun, there's a rekindled energy almost over at the Washington Post right now. Uh, there's more energy, more excitement. This is a, almost a rebirth or a renaissance for the Washington Post. Are, are you saying that that's as a result of the announcement? As a result of the announcement, absolutely. Uh, Congressman Al, something like this, though, is going to have to transform that 135-year legacy into getting the younger digital age. The old gray lady is now the old digital lady. The Washington Post has got to follow suit. I, I, I agree with you, and that's what that's what. He may be the guy that will know how to do that, uh, because he doesn't know journalism, but he know, he knows a quality product when he sees one. Uh, he's demonstrated that, and that's the reason I'm inclined to agree with uh, I believe Justin who said that he's uh, he's he's going to uh, spend his time trying to expand its income, leave the quality of the content alone. That Alan was, Moore? That was me. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. That's, that, that's, that's quite right. I mean, I I think that that he really does care about about uh, the quality of information, and he knows there's a lot of garbage that is out there uh, on the on the web, and, and the, the innocent reader who just jumps around and goes to to news aggregating sites, some often ends up with the, with the Washington Post, uh, sometimes with the New York Times, but New York Times, you can only look at 10 articles and then they want your money. Um, the Post has been moving in that direction to create what they call a paywall, so you get limited access and then you have to start paying something. There's a lot of different ways to try that. You can, what New York Times does is say, you pay a monthly fee. Right. And, 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 and Bezos has got deep enough pockets that he can, he can go that route. He can say, pay a few pennies per article, um, uh, or find or advertisers who will who will provide more revenue. Is Amazon the new newspaper box? Well, let's not talk. Remember, this is Bezos. They, they, they've been very careful to say this is Bezos' personal investment. This has got not, nothing, nothing to do with Amazon. with Amazon. And and they've also said, no surprise, he's going to buy the company, take it private. He won't have shareholders looking over his shoulder, wondering about stock prices, rates of return, profitability. 
He is worth an estimated $25 billion, billion and he paid less than 1% of his fortune for something that actually has physical assets, reputation, and so on. So for him, he can afford to toss a, a few hundred million into this, a billion or two over a period of time, try to help the country understand uh, different models that work from a position of deep pockets without shareholders looking over their shoulders. Congressman now, and going back to your comment about the <clears throat> the attitude change in the newsrooms at the Post, if you were working for a, an organization that showed every indication of slowly dying, and suddenly a, uh, a, a genie pops out of the bottle and gives you some hope that it may go in the other direction, You'd be happy too, and well, I think that's what's causing the, the Graham the, the Graham companies have, have have been somewhat successful in diversifying themselves. Uh, the big one, the Kaplan organization, which has an online university, online uh, training programs. Uh, Kaplan even has the first accredited online digital law school. Uh, you know, they they've been trying to, but it almost seems that. The Grams and, and the and the, and the former CEO Donald Graham was just so latched onto that old black ink infrastructure that made the Washington Post the go-to for political reporting. Well, he 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 knew that business, and he isn't going to know what Bose knows. It, it, but it, it brings up the question: Donald Graham knew about old black ink paper. That's right. Bezos yeah. knows about the internet age. Donald Graham didn't know about Internet and how the digital era works, whereas we can't really say Bezos is a true journalistic mind. Well, I know well, that's true. I think that uh, we're going to see, as Alan said, he's going to stay. Content is going to be left to the pros, and he is going to try to, he's going to find ways to make it sellable and a valuable product. Around you know in a new in a new time in a new way, and I think that's going to be the real answer. I, I think Alan is exactly right. I think that's what he sees. And as as we all know, twenty five billion dollars will uh, give you a lot of uh, wiggle room as you're trying to figure uh, out right. figure out new ways to develop and spread out the value of a newspaper. Carl Tubin. I, I was going to say the same thing. He he will he will take the the people who do the content. And, and marry them with, with what he's trying to do, whether it's going to be uh, uh, visual things, uh, uh, so they'll put on, not YouTube, but they'll put on a channel, or the Washington Post channel to get more of the news out, more of the content out, whether instead of his people going on all the other programs, they might have their own program. Kind of like what Rupert Murdoch's done with the Wall Street Journal, what yeah. he's done with uh, his other publications. But you know, the, maybe maybe he'll give every every reporter at the Washington Post his or her own blog talk radio show. No, because that's competition. We don't want that. Unless Jeffrey wants to buy our rights, I'd be happy to do that. We can we can do that all day long. You know, I, I, I want to say one thing about Donald Graham because we were saying, well, he's old line newspaper and and uh, and Bezos is uh, is is, is new digital. Donald Graham has been wrestling with this stuff for years. Donald Graham is, sits on the board of Facebook. He hangs out uh, with some of these guys. He knows these people. He's not. He's, he's not, not totally ig ignorant. He's not totally ignorant at all. But he also knows what he knows and knows what he doesn't know, and realizes that these guys and their deep 
this man and his deep pockets. The deep pockets are really important in all of this because it allows, and, and Graham cares about the enterprise. They also, they also care about their people, and the paper is shrunk and so on. With Bezos coming in, it provides some stability for a while. They don't have to keep cutting it and cutting and cutting and shrinking. Um, and uh, and, and this, as far as the newsroom is concerned, and this is why they're so happy, it's like, wait a minute. We don't know what's going to happen, but we, but we know that money, at least for a while, isn't necessarily going to be the primary issue. Here's a guy who wants this to work and wants to find ways to make it work. You know, the, the two people we automatically associate with the Washington Post, that'd be Bob Woodward, Carl Bernstein. Both of them had a, a somewhat different take. You have Carl Bursey was uh, quoted in Politico today. He says, quote, today's announcement will represent a great moment in the history of a great institution. He continues, recognition of that new that a new kind of entrepreneurship and leadership fashioned in the age of new technology is needed to lead not just the post but perhaps the news business itself and combine the best of enduring journalistic values and all the potential of the digital era, unquote. Whereas if you look at Bob Woodward, Bob Woodward basically comes out and says that Jeff Bezos isn't Rupert Murdoch. He is being a lot more cautious about this. Uh, he's, he basically said he doesn't see any downside to it, but the values of the Post have been prominent in practicing true journalism. Is that a, is that a good thing, Bob Hines? That well, it seems to me from what you're quoting that both Bernstein and Woodward think this is this is going to be a good thing because the guy who's coming in is someone who knows how to do who's been very successful. He's got the resources, and he's going to find a way to make it work. I I think, quite frankly, uh, this is a super win from the standpoint of the best possible opportunity. For number one, the Washington Post to survive, and number two, for it to lead the way in new ways to reach its audience, and that is the future. And I think Bezos is probably is is has got the resources and probably the the, the ideas about how to do it that are going to be that are going to be very very valuable to the Post and newspapers generally long term. Bob, Bob Woodward continued in the same article in Politico. He said, quote, we need a renaissance in reporting. The Washington Post spends about $100 million on its news collecting operations. Suppose somebody is now coming in and saying, well, let's double it. Let's triple it. Let's really hyperinvest, which, of course, is the Jeff Bezos trademark. That's how he made Amazon the monolith that it is. Is He just hyperinvested, was a good salesman, got key investors, and made it the the mega store that it is now. Bottom line. Yeah, well, it isn't just that he had the money to do it. You have to have the idea to do it. You have to have the concept you want to you want to create, and that's where Bezos is going to be a big help. Alan Moore. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't myself see Bezos throwing, doubling or tripling the uh, the amount spent on news. Um, I think he starts out thinking. It's still a solid newspaper. It may need some strengthening here or there. They've shut a lot of their overseas operations. You might might find a reason to, to, to open a couple um, and maybe give everybody a little bonus just to make them feel even better. But, but, but I think the deal with him is how do you preserve the quality of the collection of news, the quality of content, 
but in a in a model that that brings in enough revenue to pay for it. And and that's that's what's happened as as advertising has moved away from the daily newspaper. And it's all about the advertising. It's all about the revenue that, that advertising brings to make a print paper work. When the, when, the, when the advertising leaves, you can't make the numbers work. And Bezos is interested in trying to see if there's some ways that you can, you can find other sources of revenue so you can preserve the, the quality of the content. You know, you know but Congressman Allen, this was was not the only story of a major shift in an old established uh, media source. Newsweek sold this past week, and this coming week will be their last printed edition. Everything is going digital. Uh, we saw that. That got relatively little news, only because of the fact that uh, I believe it was the Daily Call or the Daily Beast had bought Newsweek in the rights, and they've since spun that off into this new sale, whole new different world. We're seeing the, the age of blog talk radio, bloggers, and the Internet taking over where the Woodwards and Bernsteins of old are now going away. Well, they're moving into the area they haven't taken over yet. They haven't got the quality, they haven't got the breadth, uh, or the respect that uh, a paper like the Post has. Not yet. Uh, they may get there. And Bezos may be one of the guys that will lead it there. Carl Tuvin? Uh, <clears throat> you know, it, it, the interesting thing, I wonder what would have happened if the, um, blocking on names, if the person who had originally bought the uh, Newsweek hadn't passed away, and whether he would have been able to do, whether he would have been able to pour money into it or find ways for the Newsweek to, to make money. Well, go ahead. Remember, that was, that was Sidney Harmon. He paid a dollar, right. one dollar, for Newsweek, and his commitment was he was going to invest a lot of money in it, and then he died. Um, and, and ended up selling it to this Daily Beast. Daily Beast, where where Tina Brown and others could not make it work. So now it's been sold. We don't know what the price is. It may be for a negative price. It may be for a dollar fifty. Maybe for ninety nine cents. We we don't know. I wanted to say one more thing though about about uh, about about. Uh, about, about Bob Woodward, what I heard him saying was, "This is a sad day for the Post, but not, but, but not necessarily a bad day for a Post. Sad because of of what it means in terms of what we used to have, and and, and that it's never going to be the same again. But not a bad day because it may be its best hope for the future." And his reference to Murdoch, saying he's not a, a Murdoch, was because so many of the people in the media don't think much of Murdoch at all. They they see him as this schlock artist who 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 uh who who have the 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 daily rags in uh, in London and came and, and juiced up the New York Post and when he bought the Wall Street Journal everybody thought, uh oh, oh my God, he's gonna ruin the journal. But I think that was just a forerunner of what we're seeing now. So his his notion was to knock Murdoch and say and and to elevate Bezos. After all, Bezos is although he's only part time at the Post his new boss. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the, the one person we have not heard from was uh, is is the former uh, editor in chief and, and technical publisher of the Washington Post um, was uh, instrumental in uh, in Watergate. Ben Bradley. Uh, ben Bradley. Yeah, we we've yeah, not heard, we we haven't heard a lot from Ben Bradley. Yeah, he's this. he's he's pretty old now, but his wife Sally Quinn w- made some very positive remarks. Yeah, so it sounds so, like that. Yeah. Sally Quinn. The family, the family has spoken. Oh, they have. Okay, yeah. I, I didn't yeah. see that but, part. But, but she, I mean, I think 
you have to assume. And Ben Bradley's well he, into he's, his he's, 90s. He's, uh, he's in poor health. Yeah. yeah. He's also been an advisor to, to, the, to the younger people who were running the paper. Yeah, well, I know that Don Graham relied heavily on Ben Bradley when he was in better health to help drive him in, in the journalistic side. The business side is something that's always eluded them. You know, in the last four minutes here, as we see this change, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here looking around the table, and we've got, you know, four old white guys who, you know, Congressman Al, how many times do you even look at your email every week? Well, I look at it every day. Once. <laughs> exactly. I mean, are are we literally seeing a, a, a dynamic shift into who the demographic audience is? Are we looking at a younger demographic that is so that is just so hungry for journalism that the old establishment has to go that way? Congressman I, 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 I had a thought two days ago, strangely enough. As I picked up my morning post, I said, you know, I used to be that you'd also pick up your bottle of milk at the same time. Home delivery of milk stopped years ago, and home delivery of the newspaper may well follow it. And we will find other ways. We still get milk, and we probably will still get newspapers. It's worked out. Well, and you know, um, Bob Hines. We were talking about you know Newsweek disappearing in effect as a print. Does has anybody noticed that Time Magazine, which used to be at least a hundred pages, is now sixty pages? Yeah. It's amazing, and they're you know they are probably uh, within a my guess is a couple of years of maybe going the same way that has that has. Uh, all the other, you know, U.S. News and World Report, Net Newsweek, and now Next Time. But, you know, it, it, it strikes me, you know, because I remember a day growing up as a child, the big thing was what's going to be the the next cover of Time Magazine? What's going to yeah. be that cover story? And in a digital age, that that excitement goes away uh, to an extent. There's an, there's an, Congressman interesting, Al. There's an interesting thing that's that's kind of counter to all of this. A, a new magazine in the last two or three years called The Week has come out. Uh, it's very different than the old news magazines. It's a news magazine for somebody with the attention span of a gnat. It is it, it it is it is designed for people who are not going to wade through all of the other stuff. It may survive. It's uh, balanced. Uh, it's uh, interesting. It has uh, hard news and interesting features without dumping into the to the People magazine form. Uh, I I would suspect that if any news magazine survives, uh, it's going to be uh, on the basis of a format like the Week. Well, you, you know, the funny thing about it is, you know, we look at you had mentioned it earlier, Congressman Al, is the Washington Post was the preeminent political uh, reporting authority for years, it's almost seemed to have been surpassed by our friends at Politico. Uh, you know, the, it used to be you would get up in the morning and read reliable sources in the Post. Now, everybody on the Hill is logging on to Politico. Are we going to see that more with organizations like Politico, the Daily Beast, or can something like the Washington Post reclaim that grandeur? Alan well, Moore. I don't think the, the Post lost it with the kind of people you're talking about. The problem is, 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 is that most young people growing up aren't getting their news from anywhere. 
They're not bad anyway. Well, they are. They're getting it from the daily. They're getting it from the Daily Show and the Colbert. Report. Well, they're 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 getting. And these are people who say, "Don't get your news from us." They're getting they're they're getting the thinnest veneer of information and uh, and and don't care that much. I mean, that's a whole different, if you, in, in my mind, deeper problem for the country. You know, I want to bring that up when we come back. I, I do want to talk about this a little bit more when we come back, because this brings up an interesting problem. We are literally, something we've talked about at every college we've gone to is the 30-second soundbite digital media 24-hour news source, and the problem it causes. I want to bring that up here when we get back. Uh, this is Backroom Politics. It's uh, 5 o'clock, by the way. Oh. Time for us to order our drinks, cut our cigars open, and take it into the second half of the show. Backroom Politics, best talk show you haven't heard of, live from Shelley's Backroom, 1381 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. <laughs> Happy Hour on Backroom Politics is sponsored by Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., America's premier cigar tavern. Stay with us as the roundtable continues after we order our drinks, order our cigars, and get ready for the second hour of Backroom Politics. Stay with us. We'll be back in two minutes. Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Uh, we are gonna, we're talking about uh, the discussion that we had from the last segment. The Washington Post has been sold to uh, Vesos Expeditions, which is a 
personally financed organization by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. Uh, the Graham organization sold it to Mr. Bezos for about $250 million. Uh, it is, go ahead, Congressman Allen. Something in here. There may be there may be many people listening to us who say, "Well, I don't live in Washington D.C. What do I care about this?" This is a trend that is going to hit nationwide, and what happens here may very well be uh, important to people living in Poughkeepsie and uh, West Bend and everywhere. Well, I, I want to address that real quick. I mean, you know, when when somebody in Topeka, Kansas, asks, "Why do I care?" Well, the reason why I care is is that. Traditionally, it's the Washington Post, the New York Times, the L.A. Times, and those old-school, hundred-year-old journalistic entities that have changed our nation, in some instances, taken down presidencies, as in Watergate. You know, the next Watergate could be sitting out there. It's an organization like the Washington Post that traditionally finds this stuff. Um, but, but going off of that comment, though, it does bring up a very valid question, though. With the sale of the Washington Post to a digital machine like Jeff Bezos, this does beg the question. Bob, Al, you and the three of us have talked about this at just about any college we've spoken at. And we've always said that the problem today in Washington is partly, if not largely, based on the concept that the electorate today doesn't have to work in discovering how they're governed. It's literally spoon-fed to them in 30-second sound bites in a digital world where they just have to pick up their phone or their tablet and poke at a button and get whatever pops up first. Uh, you look at organizations, we've mentioned the Daily Beast before, we look at other organizations, Politico, which is a little bit more post-like than digital blogging, but, you know, we look at the Daily Caller, Daily Beast, uh, other blogs that, that are out there. The Drudge Report is always brought up. How is it that Americans have gotten to a point where we are not truly investing the time to research what, what we're voting for? It's almost like we have a lazy electorate, Bob Hines. Well, I'm not, I'm not so sure that the electorate has changed uh, because of, of the electronic universe. Uh, I think that, uh, the, you know, the public is never paying attention at, in the percentages that we would all like, you know, in, as far as really paying attention. During elections, people get worked up, but they get worked up because of the campaigns. The campaigns say, say, you know, watch out for Sam because, boy, he's going to destroy the world, so you don't want to vote for him. The reality is that uh, the, uh, the quick and easy way is to just listen to the, the political ads, and people, more of that is spending. That's why there's so much money spent. That's why the, uh, the Obama people have this great uh, structure where they know who their voters are, they know where they are, and they know how to get them out. They know how to energize them, and it's a different it's a different world than it used to be. We shouldn't we shouldn't be surprised by it. But Alan Moore, it, it, it just seems that instead of the why is this issue important to me, it's the Obama administration administration did a great job of telling their base of this is what's important to you. 
not the here's why or the make your own decision. Well, they did a they did a great job. Uh, uh, I, I saw a reference from Jim Messina, who was one of the really smart guys who played a very senior key role in the in the Obama election, and he said that we and he said this before they actually even did this. This was early on. I think this was in the, this new book that Dan Baltz wrote, where he said we're, we're taking we're taking some advice from from Mike Tyson. It is if people can have their plan and be trying to execute it, and then you slam them in the face, and it really messes up their plan, and they can't do anything thereafter. And what they and that's what we're going to do in this campaign, and that's what they did. They demolished, they trashed Romney, and he was a big fat target. He he gave him uh, he gave him ammo, um, and and all of a sudden he's on the defensive. They have to find him. It's, it wasn't. It, it really wasn't about the issues. If you if you polled and, and every time you looked at these polls about what people think about different issues in, of the day, it's scary. And we, we I, I typically refer to them as low information voters, which is just sort of my kindly way of saying we have a lot of voters who just don't know much and don't care much, but they're but they're relatively easily manipulated. And this is on all sides. I'm not trying to 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 to, to pick one side or the other. Um, and we want to get these people registered. We want to get them to vote. Doesn't matter what they know because that's 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 the country we have. Um, but and you you play by that. You figure out what the rules are, and you and you and you take advantage of the of the openings and opportunities. But but <coughs> but I my my fear is we want is. It, it wasn't that people used to read all the daily newspapers that used to come out, and 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 and, and we have been watching newspapers fall off the face of the earth for uh, for 20 years now. The, the the towns and cities, and Al, you would know some out 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 in your old district that used yeah. to have two or three papers, uh, and they and they're and they're lucky if they have one. Anymore. But, yeah, but Alan, yeah, and Washington's like that, and, and, a, and a lot of places but, are like that. But Alan, we're talking we're talking literally about a a grouping of. I'll give you an example. Last summer, I gave a speech at Georgetown University, and I asked the question, "Where do you get your major source of information, political news, international news, etc.?" A majority of them said, "No kidding," from the Daily Show and the Colbert Report. This is what's driving this new digital easy access information. They are literally there are literally college students getting their information from people who are saying, Don't get your information from me. We're satire. This is not a good source of news. It it does beg the question though is in this day and age, how does one truly get enough information? Because there's a ton of it out there. How does one get enough information to truly make an educated, informed decision? Or have we lost those days? Carl Tubman. Well, <clears throat> unfortunately, many of them get it from debates. They, they look at the candidate debates, and that's where they, they make up their mind. And, and unfortunately, we only have three, two or three of presidential uh, there's probably more when when people run for governor of states. There's more debates there than there are in, in the presidential. And I don't know how many people watch the state debates. Not many. Well, not many. No, no, no. And how many watch the full presidential debates? No, no. no. Congressman Al. Well, and, and we talk about young people get it from uh, two, two or programs that are no are liberal, 
right? Mm -hmm. And I, that doesn't necessarily mean young people are all liberal. It means that they like that kind of humor and what have But they're not news sources, though, Al. Of, of course not. But they're, they are to the, those people. They said that's where they get their... But, it, but Congressman, doesn't that scare you? Well, let me continue. There are also people who get all of their news from Rush Limbaugh. And there are people who get all their news from from Fox and so forth and so on. So MSNBC. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So it's, what, what, what troubles me is this. Back in the olden days, there were three major sources of news in every home. ABC, NBC, CBS. And so whether you were Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal, you went to the poll with approximately the same database as everybody else. But you're talking, Congressman Al, about when you got your news from people like John Chancellor, Harry Reasoner, um, Walter Cronkite. Yes, I am. When you talk about those, those were non-opinionated, for the most part, straight old-school journalists. Yes, and what I'm saying is we had a, 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 a similar database from which we made our, our judgments. Now, now that we can pick what we want to hear and what slant we want on it and listen to that, there are people who believe that Fox News is absolutely God's word sent to them. And there are people who, uh, on the liberal side, who, uh, who go elsewhere. The, the, the fact that Americans no longer have the same database means that we have very different ideas of what the hell is going on in our world. But, but even then, and it, is, go ahead, Bob. and it is human nature to, when they want to know about an issue or something's going on, they're going to turn on to somebody who they like to listen to because that person is telling them in many, in many areas what they already know and believe. And therefore, they say, this is the guy or gal I want to, talk, I want to listen to because I really like what she or he is saying over in this area, so she must be right in this area too. And that's what people watch. That's, that's the difference between what Al was saying earlier about 30 years ago and 20 years ago when the three networks were relatively judicious and careful. They, they all basically had the same story. They basically were not pushing it one way or another. It was much more down the middle, factual, rather than opinionated. It's, it's changed. It's changed even on uh, almost every news source you have today has a point of view. Alan Moore. No, I also grew up in a time there when, when we got a morning newspaper, the LA Times, an afternoon paper, uh, the, the the Valley where I where where I lived, and the the uh, the Times was more the the bigger picture, national, the the local paper had a lot of local slant on news and local information and and what was going on and and local sales and advertisements and so on. And then in the evening there were three choices and there were three channels, so. In, but as cable TV came in, more choices occurred. It wasn't that people wanted to go to other news or slanted news. They wanted to go to other stuff. They didn't want the news, or they never. A lot of the, a lot of families, and, and and you know, it wasn't young people per se. It was was people of any age. They weren't that interested. But if they, but there were, they were much more likely to sit down in front of the TV and catch the news and at least pick up on 
some of it. Whereas now there's, you know, the kid try to get try to get a young person to sit and watch a new show and good luck and, and not have have a, have something in their hand where they're texting a friend, um, uh, surfing uh, the the web. Um, game. It, it's. It's uh, there's so many other but, yeah, options. But, but, now. I, but I guess it, it, it comes back to the the age of Twitter, where we are literally having people who will complain about how they're governed and what's wrong with Washington all day long, but what they won't do is try and research it in less than 140 characters. That's that's a, that, I mean, that's a, a lazy electorate, in my opinion. Am I wrong in that, Congressman? No, you are not. You are not wrong, and I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, I don't know whether I'll live to see it get better. We're having a, a cataclysmic change in communication in this country, and how it will settle out, or if it will ever settle out, we don't know. But uh, in the meantime, democracy is is going to get a little fragile uh, because we will not be going to the polls with anything even remotely close to a balanced view of what's going on. Bob Hines. And to touch on that point, uh, an electorate which is as disassociated as it is today from actually knowing what's going on and why it's happening is susceptible to Huey Long is susceptible to those kinds of people you know you know a Rush Limbaugh a Rush Limbaugh the, the, if, if, when that's your viewpoint I mean you're, if, if Rush Limbaugh is your point of view the kind of person you're going to vote for for president is probably someone who shouldn't be president. And, and it's and also it's true, and it's, it's the same on the liberal side. Schultz it's, it's, exactly the, it's exactly the same. And and we're we're getting to a point when the when the idea when when potential candidates start being talked about at this time looking toward the next presidential election, some of the names being being suggested and bounced around on both sides are just scary as, as, as can be because you, you think about this person and what he or she has said in the past six months. You say, my God, this person would take us over a cliff. Carl Cuban. Yeah. Uh, you talk about growing up with two papers. Uh, in Baltimore, we had the morning sun and the evening sun. And, and when television came, that kind of knocked out the evening sun because you had the morning sun gave you the early news, the evening sun gave you the afternoon news. <clears throat> and, you know, the Internet has caused, I think has really caused this, this change from reading newspapers to getting things from the Internet and, and other areas where you didn't have that before. And I think that there's a small group of people who, when they hear about an issue, will go to the computer and look up the issue. But it's a very small group, and that's scary. What's happened is, in the old days, it's turned upside down. In the old days, you had the three networks, as we've said, and major newspapers. We also had liberal and conservative radio commentators. Edward P. Morgan was sponsored, for heaven's sakes, by the AFL-CIO. And Fulton Lewis, Jr. was sponsored by God knows whom. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, but 
they were there, but the base of information came from the networks and the daily newspapers. Now, the, the, the base seems to be coming from the acknowledged conservatives and acknowledged liberals programming, and the three networks are, 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 are not the base anymore. They're kind of the, the, the extra that used to be Fulton Lewis and Edward B. Morgan. Bob Hines. Not one of the networks has even half of the audience that they had 15 years ago as a percentage. Not half. But, but Alan Moore, we, there are some that say that the digital age gets more information available out to more people in rapid time, making it a more populist movement as opposed to those political wonks that voted and everybody else just kind of did it on name recognition. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you can lead a, it's the old, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. I, I love the internet. I love the ability to jump around and jump to the to Politico and the Post and, and who knows what else has got a story. Maybe it's an Anthony Weiner story in the other Post, the New York Post. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm fair game for all of that stuff. Um, and if I want to, if I'm reminded of something, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll look it up and learn you know, what, who was this or what happened at, uh, on this date. But you know, I'm not. I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a fabulous uh, resource. But I'm, I'm also well aware that, that although it's there and there are plenty of people who use it uh, that way, there are a lot of people who don't. But they choose not to. And uh, when people say they get their news from from uh, from from Colbert, um, I bet they don't watch every night either. I mean, you you do learn things from watching those shows because they're very very current in what they're talking about, and they'll have some ironic point, but you'll actually they'll have to explain what the fact is before they can poke fun at it. So it's not I don't think it's the it's the absolute worst thing in the world. It's just I, it's just not what we want in terms of an educated populace. But if you really want to be appalled, go look at polls that, that show uh, people's misconceptions about all kinds of things. One of my favorites was always, you know, what do we spend uh, more, more money on, foreign aid or Medicare? And 90% of the people think we spend more on foreign aid, and, 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 and the reverse is true to 20 times over. And, and, and there's just... It's just one example of of uh, of this this uh, this this problem of having a uh, a uh, low information voter, a low information populace that doesn't care. I wonder. I wonder. Uh, given our ages, how many young people are listening to us? I wonder how many people out there had the slightest idea who Fulton Lewis Jr. was. Uh, I don't think I don't. I'm think, not sure the table did. Uh, yeah, I was going to say I can tell you I did not. Al, until you, well, you're younger. There you go. Um, final thoughts on this. When when we when we look back at, at at the old school media and now coming into the new digital age, do we foresee a time truly when the information will be used to? Truly inform an electorate as opposed to just spoon feed them the 30 second sound bites. Congressman, I missed the beginning of the question. Okay. 
is the digital media, do we foresee a digital media age where instead of feeding them 30-second sound bites, we're gonna, they'll be able to truly get inf information that will allow them to make informed I, decisions about how they vote? I, I think, and maybe this is just a hope, but I think at some point uh, this is going to become so shallow and so obviously inadequate that we'll start moving back in the other direction. It won't, it won't come back to the way it was when, in our youth when Fulton Lewis Jr. was around, uh, but, but it, it will come back to something more forceful. My line. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I, I was almost done, but I think it's going to take time for all of this to occur, and, and I don't, as I said, expect to live to see it. My mind. Even today, there are places to find, you know, serious efforts to, to provide news and information. Those will always be there. They will not be the ones, I don't think, ever again, given all the resources available and sources available. I don't think it's ever going to be as focused on news and information as opposed to gossip and fun, goofy stuff. Uh, you know, and all the rest of it that goes on on the internet and other places. I think it's going to always it's, it's going to be it's going to be an effort to find the, the stuff that makes that is that is factual, but it's always going to be available. Alan Moore, you know, I think I think places like Washington and New York uh, uh, are are, are going to survive just fine. There's still going to be enough interest in what's going on, enough enterprises digging in, writing about it, paying attention. Whether it's the Washington Post, the Washington Post in some modified form, Politico, uh, all of the major news networks who spend a lot of time and attention here. I worry more about smaller towns where newspapers are disappearing, and you wonder, well, who's going to be looking at the bad behavior of mayors and county officials who, where, where there used to be somebody watching, but if, if when those papers go away and nobody's watching, then... There, there's a different kind of risk of bad behavior gone unnoticed. We're seeing that in a major city like San Diego. I'm seeing it in Claremore, Oklahoma. How about Washington, D.C.? Washington, D.C., City Council. Our third but we see it. We, we see it and we know about it here. I'm worried about the stuff we won't, that, that in these smaller towns. Like Claremore, Oklahoma. You're not going to hear about Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Carl Tubman? Well, I. Uh, Okay, well, with that, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, I know this is shocking. Congress is in recess, and we're going to take a look at... How, how could you tell? Exactly. We're going to take a look at... It's The segment is literally titled, They're in Recess. Well, haven't they always been? Yeah. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or 
with something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. Here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, uh, in case you haven't noticed, Congress is in recess. And I know those of you out in the heartland are probably thinking, I did not know that because, again, nothing's getting done. Well, that's because they're back in your district, kids. Hey, uh, Congressman Al, did you know that Congress is in recess? Yes, I did. How because, did you know? Because the the traffic driving in was was easier for reasons I never understood. When Congress leaves, the traffic cleans up at Washington D.C. Now there's only 435 of them. They couldn't be the whole cause of it. 
I mean, everybody leaves town. I thought you were going to say because they're not doing anything stupid. That's how we know that they're in recess. I see. Well, I I missed a good line. <laughs> that was your line for the. Oh, you no, know what? That was Bob's line. Oh, was Bob's line. Oh, Bob's oh, line. Yeah. Sorry, Bob. I took that away from you. Hey, yeah, you it's know, all right. You know, looking at recess, you know, it's a good time to reflect over the over the past few months and saying, hey, since the election, what exactly have they done, Bob? Well, they have um, had roll calls to see if there's a quorum mm-hmm. present, mm-hmm. and uh, they have dealt with, uh, let's see. It's one thing they did. Um, what, what they, the fact that we have to sit well, here and think is disturbing. Alan Moore, while he's going through his archives, give me one good thing that this Congress has done since the election and now till recess. Well, they haven't done significant damage. Yeah. Uh, that's a <laughs> Any issue, you know that the uh, everybody knows this this very difficult political balance uh, that, that that we've now got. It's hard to get stuff done, whether without a group like the Tea Party, um, whether whether without a, a still a really really struggling economy. They're just powerful differences of opinion on on what makes the most sense. The Senate did pass a, a big immigration bill. Um, and, and that uh, got shot down in the house. And, well, it hasn't. It's just, no, it it's hasn't been ignored. Oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's it hasn't a, been brought up. Well, Nobody it, has it, achieved it hasn't a shoot been, at it. Um, and uh, even though Al would like to make the Senate more like the House, I'll remind him that it was the Senate who uh, who passed that. Both houses passed budget resolutions, but they can't agree to go to conference uh, on this. But they can't agree. You know, I, I, I think the smarter move would have been to go ahead. And, and create a conference and let that go to stalemate because it looks uh, makes it, it look like they're being somewhat prepared. well it it, it it's a it, it it brings unnecessary uh, criticism onto the Republicans for not even going to uh, uh, being willing to go to a conference Bob Bob Ines? and the House is going to be passing uh, probably early in September a series of of immigration bills that it, it, there is no package bill like the Senate bill. There's a whole, there's about three or four different individual items within the question of immigration, uh, and they're going to pass those. And then we're going to have the same kind of a situation that uh, Alan has just indicated about the budget. I find it very surprising. I think if if we get a an immigration uh, conference with four or five House bills, all of which are different pieces of the one big Senate bill, I don't see a conference happening on that either. Nothing's going to happen. Here's what what has been lost by some of the members of it. Democracy requires compromise. Stop and think about it. If you're going to have a a country of uh, several hundred million people and each one is going to have the freedom to believe what they want and advocate what they want, and you want to get anything done, it suggests not a compromise, but compromises all along the way. Compromises at the county party, compromises at the state convention, within the same party. And then ultimately the two parties come together, and if they're going to get anything done, they have to have compromises. The Tea Party tends to believe that a compromise is a sinful thing that everything is principle and nothing can be compromised. That also means nothing gets done and that the that the, that the United States can just go to hell. Bob Ines. They, 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 
besmirch their white gowns. Exactly. Know? And and Al and I have talked about this in the past because in the Watergate election, the Democrats elected what you would call the Democratic Tea Party in a great sense in the House. And it took them about three elections and, th- and you know three terms before some of the some of those very bright people learned to make compromises. Now we're about halfway through a three-term discussion of when you're going to get smart on the Republican side. But you know until they do, we are screwed. Carl Tubin. Uh, Alan, I want some help on this. There was a bill uh, that failed last week, an appropriations bill, because the Republicans couldn't get enough votes and the Democrats were, were opposed to it, and it, it went against it went against Paul Ryan's um, uh, philosophy of cuts. And, oh, uh, pick one. The transportation bill? It's the transportation yeah. bill that he's talking about. Um the transportation bill, the farm bill. I mean, well, these are key legislation. The, the, yeah, the, again, the Senate passed a big farm bill, and the and the and the House couldn't, and then it passed uh, the the farm piece and pulled out the food stamp piece. But I'm going to just remind everybody because we we talk about compromise as though somehow that's just this magic notion that these guys haven't learned yet. Remember what brought a lot of these guys into office. 2007, 2008, 2009, this economy went through a wrenching, horrible, destructive, scary recession. Why did it do that? Because of arguably bad compromises struck in years past. Bad compromises regarding how you get a mortgage, who gets a mortgage, what what government spends, uh, how much we tax, and when you added up these the, the, some some questionable judges, judgments that seemed to make sense at the time were compromises, we had a devastating impact on on our economy, and we are we have not recovered from that. So it's it, you, you, we elected a bunch of people who said no more of these. Crappy compromises that help that help put us into the situation. So, a lot of these guys who who we dismiss somehow as tea partiers, as though they are not thinking for themselves, um, are, are are doing what they said they were going to do. They're going to disrupt things. They're not going to support bad compromises. Is that a way to function over time? No. But we shouldn't be surprised that they're doing what they said they were going to do. And for some of them, they. Making cutting cutting a deal that that they that they find unacceptable, they'd rather do nothing than cut a bad deal. Congressman Al, but what the the alternative they could do is work out good compromises and say that they will only go along with good compromises and offer suggestions that are compromised. They don't have to sit there like they know everything there is to know and aren't going to budge until you agree with them. Bob Lines. Uh, I have to disagree with my dear friend Alan, who I highly respect, because I think that uh, I think Al is more close to right. The mortgage deal that you know we can anybody who's got four dollars can get a mortgage uh, was not so much a compromise; it was just a stupid decision. It wasn't a compromise; it was a stupid decision. And and I the Democrats had a big hand. 
Yeah, but, well, yes, they did. But the fact of the matter, it was a stupid decision, period. But I want to I want to make a little thought about about the truth about the need for compromise. Uh, and I'm going to go back a long way to the Constitutional Convention. Wow. Yeah, and we had won the. That's whole, before Fulton Lewis Jr. That's right. Yeah. And, and even <laughs> he was the baby. Yeah, and even before you were elected to the House, Al. <laughs> Not much early, but a little bit. But you, you, you look, you look at we won the revolution. The uh, Confederate, the Articles of Confederation government didn't work. The states and the, and the federal government didn't work at all. So we we put a constitution together, which is probably it's the oldest written constitution. It is probably the greatest political document ever written by the mind of man. It, it may be improved someday, but it, nobody's done it yet. And what they did. Look at look. You could never have had that constitution if you had not had substantial compromises that were funda were so fundamental that people had to agree that they had to let go of some of their well thought out principles in order to make the whole better. I give you the thought that every state got two senators when we had went to the house. The smaller states said, we're going to be overwhelmed, particularly in the South. That's where most of the smaller states were. Pennsylvania was a big state. New York was a big state. Massachusetts was a big state. Carolinas and Georgia and Arkansas and, and, Arizona and Alabama weren't very big. Virginia was big. And Virginia was big. But that's the, only bigger, that's the only big state. They cut a deal that we would never approve today by saying, okay, South, we're not going to let you what you're asking for get a black who you will not permit to vote to be counted as a person for purposes of getting people in the House of Representatives. And they cut, they cut a deal for three-fifths. It was the deal. And the, and the reality is things like that were done in order to make this country whole and put it together. We have lost the ability to understand that sometimes I may not get exactly what I want, but we have to find a way to recognize that it might be a good idea for me to back off a little bit and let somebody else find a way to solve a problem. In the, you know, when you're in a when you're in a minority, you're never you, you don't win. When you're in a majority, you do win. When you're in a majority, you want to make a deal and give something to the minority so they can come back and say, well, we got something, so we can live with it. Congressman Al. And might I suggest that that compromise in which a black person count was counted as three-fifths but still couldn't vote, that was a bad compromise. Yeah. Carl, uh, as, 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 as As witness, it wasn't straightened out until we had a civil war, war which already. we killed more That's Americans right. than any other yeah. war. But if we hadn't made that compromise, we... If, we, if we hadn't made the bad compromise, we, we wouldn't exist. That's right. Carl Tubin. I go back to something that <clears throat> everyone in this group agrees to, and that is is that we, the, the Republicans and the Democrats and the Tea Party, you know, don't get together to get to know one another, so they and have some respect for one another and their views, so that they know what's happening and they know that they have to make these compromises and take something from the others that is good 
and put it together what they want and come up with solid legislation. And unfortunately, we hear that it's happening some with the first termers and some with the people who second term, but it hasn't it hasn't gotten to the point where it has to get. Yeah, but I mean, when we look at a Congress that literally floats up and down between single and double digit approval ratings, I mean, as a congressman, and, and Congressman Al, I'll go to you. As a congressman, how do you go back and justify? Your existence and the fact that you want to reelect me into something that nine, ten, nine out of ten Americans just don't like. By demagoguery, you go back home and you say, you know, because of my voting against this and this and this, you don't have this terrible thing and that terrible thing and something else. You, you have to, you have to make your position uh, courageous. And uh, it can be done. I mean, demagoguery is not new. It's been going on since the beginning of man. Alan Moore? I, I agree with Al here. You've got, you, you, this is, this is and, and Carl before talked about uh, playing to your base. So you've got people who believe in a very activist government, notwithstanding a lot of proof demonstrated failures. So you say, I am fighting for you. I'm fighting for fairness. I'm fighting for for more benefits for you and and higher taxes to to pay for them, uh, we've got income inequality, the whole populist kind of line of argument. And then on the on the other side, you've got people saying, "I am standing at the at the battle wall, and I will fight to the death to keep these guys from from uh, coming in and taking our money and redistributing uh, our our wealth and creating a socialist state." So. You, you got plenty of room for uh, for for the rhetoric and for somebody who's going out and, and, and going into town hall meetings. I think it's important. Actually, we're talking about this recess, and we think about about recesses when we were kids, which was recess between classes, and you go outside and run around and play. Uh, Al, how much play did you have during recess? Uh, during every recess, but the August recess, uh, none. Uh, the August recess. I would take two of the four weeks uh, to have a family vacation. But most recesses are just an opportunity for you to go home and mix with your people and find out what they're thinking and, and explain And raise money. And, and raise money and uh, do a little politicking and so forth. But you're working. You're not, you're not, taking, a, you know, you're, oh, no. you're not taking the time off. You work uh, a lot of times harder on recents because yeah, you're but running I, from place to place to place. I just wanted to point yeah, out no, that. No, no, no. I agree with that. But it, it, it's gotten to the point now where with air travel and the Internet, all the members are going home almost every weekend. None of them are staying here. we said this many times before. They're not staying here and hanging out with their colleagues, getting dinner, having a drink, playing golf. We don't see that anymore because they're all on the first flight out on Friday afternoon going back to the district because they got to go raise money. Bob and I sat here in Shelley's over drinks and, uh, and, and, and came up with a, a list of rather silly reforms that would improve that. One. No congressman could go home more than once a month. Uh, and uh, we had. And it's true that 40 years ago, when I first got to the Hill, that was about where it was. Yeah, but, but you know, you see people like Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, who sit there and go, government spend too much money, spend too much of your money. If they're the first ones to hop that flight, go back home. Back, back home, 
yep. and start politicking the rhetoric. That's right. Well, I mean, the fact is, if they couldn't go home more than once a month, uh, they'd be forced to stay here and talk to each other. God forbid. Not only that, I think they could make greater use of their time back home uh, because they'd only do important things and uh, and be able to... Alan's laugh. Alan has this look of, now, oh, oh, you silly, silly people. I'm wondering if we'll get to something that's relevant. I think arguing the benefits of limiting uh, members from going home to once a month is probably not the best use of our air time. Well, Bob and I, that was our best thinking after two martinis. What do you think? Carl Zubin. And it I, still is. Yes. All these many months and years later. Absolutely. <laughs> let, me, let me say this. I think that, you know, all these people who are going home and who are demagoguing about what they do and, and, and how great they are because we're stopping this, we're stopping that. And CNN has started last week, a friend of mine told me, and they are, they are talking about the do-nothing House of Representatives. And I think that if they, if they keep doing that, and, and people are going to get angry enough that some of these districts that are supposed to be safe districts are going to go away from the Republicans. You know, you know, you know what, Carl? I would love to smoke what you're smoking. That is brilliant. <laughs> I want some of that. I, I, Congressman Al, you look like you're going to say something very prolific. No, I was going to say that I, I don't think Carl is that, that far off. I think at some point. The American public is not stupid. They are ill-informed, as we discussed earlier in this program, and so forth and so on, but they know nothing is going on, and they know somebody's at fault, and if if CNN begins uh, think of blaming it on the Republicans in the House, or blaming it on the House, uh, I, I think that, that that could catch fire. I would, I would be frightened of that. I would be frightened of it if I was a Democrat. Because they may not make a distinction between the Republican incumbent and the Democratic incumbent. I, 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 would, I would disagree with you, Al, in one aspect. The American electorate is not only lazy, but I want to say this up front, not the politically correct thing to say, the American electorate is stupid. They choose, they choose not to look at the way they're governed. They will go back, shake someone's hand, and say, that man knocked on my door, I'm going to vote for him. Okay, you know what? UPS guy knocks on my door three times a week. doesn't mean I'm going to vote for him in the Congress. Nobody takes personal responsibility on the way they're governing you. Bob Hines. I don't believe that the electorate is stupid. Are they ill-informed? Have they not done the kind of work they should do? to find out a little bit more about what actually would happen if some if some legislation was passed. Yeah, I think they are they are somewhat lazy, but I don't think they're stupid. I think, you know, uh, they are just they're not focused on politics and I I can understand why they're not, but the fact of the matter is it would be very helpful if um, uh, if there was more information out there that was that was that was factual and not totally partisan, and both parties do exactly 
what any party would do, which is trying to get elected, put every put their best face they possibly can on their points of view, and you just have to be able as a voter, you got to pay enough time and attention to recognize what is just puff and what is reality, and it's a little bit difficult, and they're not quite up to it at this point. Every American citizen over the age of 18 has the given right to vote. If you are going to use that right to vote, there should be an inherent personal responsibility to be informed on voting the way on how you are governed. I would, Not because I would, it's cool. Agreed. Is this a naive statement? I, Absolutely. Yeah. I, was, I, was, I was just going to say that you recently said, well, good luck with that. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. I, 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 I know it's naive. But nobody it. says this. Nobody puts the blame on the crap that happens on Capitol Hill back on the voter. But the point we blame everybody, every, all 435, we blame them. The point I was making about CNN. If, if, if a major news organization, I don't know whether they count as that or not, but uh, it's a start, begins to talk about the do-nothing Congress, the do-nothing Congress is going to become an issue. And it won't be an issue that the Democrats make. It will be one that will, will begin to float through as a conventional wisdom. Then, I think every incumbent in the House is in danger the Republican incumbents probably in a little more danger. But we're putting the onus back on the representatives. Nobody puts the onus back on the electorate. I you, just did. But, uh, yeah, I, I would just, love. I, I, I think would it's say, terrible. Carl, too. The responsibility on on educating the electorate, in my mind, is the political parties. They have to put information out to 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 educate people as to why they should vote for one party and the other. And sometimes they do a good job, most of the time they do a lousy job. And well, but but, but then they're no different than the media, Carl. The, the ultimate responsibility on how you vote is lies solely on you. It, 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 it lies with the individual voter. And to sit there and say, you know what, those people up on the hill are stupid, those people up on the hill don't get anything done, they don't know what they're doing, shame on you as a voter for voting because I saw something on The Daily Show. Mr. Chairman, I call for a vote. Yeah. Well, you know what? <laughs> on how many things that you have a prayer. <laughs> All those in favor say aye. Oh, I know I don't have a prayer. I know I don't have a prayer. I know I don't have a prayer, but that would, I guarantee you, that would alleviate some of the problem that we have in Congress. Let's, Alan Moore, you disagree. Well, no, I, mean, I don't even know what the it is, because we we, we, we have a free country. It's the same we're, as is. We're people, what is is, you know. You know, where we're, we're people are free to get information or not, to register to vote, to go ahead and vote, to be persuaded to this and be persuaded to that. The parties and individuals have become pretty clever at figuring out how to manipulate the, the low information voter, or to get them to vote, or get them not to vote, or to make it harder for them to vote, um, it, it's it's a it's a crazy business that we're in. But but I think that the, the root of it comes back. And let me just say, when I was 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 talking before about we ought not be surprised at the fact that that, that people are resisting. 
not defending that. I don't think that's a great thing for the country, but but, I'm, but it sure doesn't surprise me that people who said, I'm going to go up there and, and try to stop everything are up here trying to stop everything. And, and if we really have some sense of the right thing to do, a lot of people think that Obama's ideas don't make any sense. Well, I and, not, and they don't want to compromise with him. And, and that doesn't, that, it doesn't surprise me that, that there are people, that, that we're in this kind of stalemate because we're in a deep, deep hole and, and we're really struggling to figure out how to get out of it. We, we muddle through and that's what we're going to continue to do for a while. I have a suggestion that would make what Justin's been saying more realistic. And I've done this several times and it's kind of interesting the reaction you get. The next time any of us and any of you listening on the air hear somebody bitching and moaning about some member of Congress, ask him, how did they get there? Somebody had to vote for him. You know, it's an easier way of making Justin's point than by saying, you're stupid, you know. Yeah. Who, who, who put him there? How did they get there? Bob Lines, last word. Maybe... Uh, Someday it might be, maybe even in in, in August, which is uh, upon us now, and it's relatively quiet time in Washington. We might do a good public service to talk about the election process. You know, the way uh, congressional districts are decided. The you know the the pros and cons of the way it is done in some states as opposed to others. And it might be an interest to the public to understand that in certain, in, in many states, uh, legislative gerrymandering, as we call it, you know, fixing the, fixing the districts so that they look like crazy, deformed bodies, but they're not compact and contiguous, which is the way it should be, so the communities are together. We might find a, we might find an idea about thinking about how there are ways to improve the United States House of Representatives uh, in the but sense it's that... It's not just the House, though, Bob. It's even the state legislators, even the local governing boards, whether it's your board of selectmen, your I don't, city council. I don't disagree, but I would like to find a way to get started on a process that would would help us to get a more a more representative Congress and a wiser Congress. I'll tell you what, next week, short of there being a huge story, next week we're going to talk the whole show oh, Lord. about how we are governed and coming up with why we are in why we are in the crap hole we are in. Well, because I, I, I think that'd be a great idea. I would love to, I would love to have something on record that says, hey, this is why we're in this hole. Because of the fact that we have no personal responsibility in the electorate, we have gerrymandering that continues on, even though it's quote unquote illegal. Uh, it's very legal. We have demagoguery run amok, and, and the public, and the public has, in too many instances, supported it yes. against their own best interests. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. No, unfortunately, Carrie, we have to hold it for next week. We're out of time. Yeah, the one time you have a story that doesn't go back to the Hoover administration. Oh, real? Okay, I'll tell you what. I have one about Lewis Jr. No, no, well, we're out of time. We're out of time. On behalf of, you got to hold it for next week. Okay. On behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Alan Moore, 
Carl Tubin. I am your moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next week, live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? Boy, is this the place to be. It sure is. We'll see you next week. Have a good congressional recess, everybody. Bye-bye.